0: Welcome to today's podcast episode on hepatic infections. I'm your host, M. Tombash, research fellow at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Along with StayCurrent, we are sharing knowledge to improve child health around the globe. In this episode, we will be explaining the types, presentation, diagnosis, and management of various hepatic infections with Dr. Alex Bondock.
1: It's not the longest topic, um, and I'm trying to hit the high points.
0: He's a pediatric surgeon at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And throughout this podcast, we will use a few imaging that will help us understand the cases. If you want to follow along and check them out, they are below in the description on the Stakehorn app. We're starting out with a case.
1: A seven-year-old girl goes to her pediatrician's office with a one-week history of a diminished appetite and right upper quadrant fullness. But the kid isn't jaundiced, there's no lymphadenopathy, there's nothing really else to reveal. Besides subjective fever, she's been well. What do you guys want to do next?
0: Let's make a pit stop first and go to do some labs. We sent some blood samples and labs are relatively unremarkable.
1: It's important to understand the way things can look inside the liver and that really helps you understand what your possibilities are here.
0: In this patient's ultrasound, there's a hypoechoic circular structure in a solid organ in the right upper quadrant.
1: The lining is simple or looks smooth and simple, and it looks like it shadows posteriorly, all right? So based on those conclusions, you would say that this is probably a simple fluid-filled structure.
0: And in the axial image, we see a simple cystic hepatic structure in the right lobe that is water weight has no solid component, it doesn't appear complex, and the wall is smooth.
1: This is the reason we wanna make note of all these things mentally, right? Because not only does it inform your differential, but it also informs the prognosis of how you're going to follow the patient, or if you're gonna be forced to do something about it.
0: We know that this child has no symptoms as a result of the cyst. So what should be on the differential here? Maybe it could be a vascular malformation.
1: What would you see on a vascular malformation? Usually mixed density. It has flow yeah. in it. Could be a biloma, could be a colidocal cyst, a weird presentation of corollaries. What else? What about inherited diseases?
0: That would be autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease with hepatic manifestations. There's an entity also known as autosomal dominant polycystic liver disease.
1: But from a clinical perspective, if it doesn't manifest as some kind of liver insufficiency, it's not. You would just follow it. You wouldn't really have much else to do. Are there any primary cystic malignancies of the liver? And then there's this very rare entity that I've seen once, also known as a ciliated foregut cyst.
0: That's essentially a variant on a bronchogenic cyst. And so similarly with a bronchogenic cyst, you have to follow those long-term and consider intervening on them for risk of malignancy down the road.
1: So here's information about the simple cyst, predominantly in women, especially symptomatic cysts. One study I looked at said that in symptomatic, simple hepatic cysts, it's a one to nine predominance, male to female, I'm not sure why.
0: They're more often noted in the right lobe. It is probably just a mass issue because right lobe is larger than the left. Symptomatic ones are definitely larger and complications can occur, but they are very rare. So what should we do?
1: I would probably tend to see the kid back more likely every year just to make sure that there aren't any symptoms or nothing else as weird as going on. So when would you be concerned?
0: When there are hints that might push us more towards worrying about malignancy like weight loss, night sweats, coagulopathy, or looking more sick.
1: Right, if you ended up having abnormal LFTs or other lab values, and if symptoms changed and you re-imaged it and it grew, what are some things that you might have seen on imaging that might be concerning to you? What features would make you worried?
0: Calcifications, septations, and maybe a thicker rim would make some surgeons worry. So here we left you an algorithm in the description to manage the simple hepatic cystic disease. This algorithm is for adult patients, so this may not be necessarily completely apples and oranges.
1: But this is an algorithm to managing simple hepatic cystic disease. They use the size cutoff for concern as four centimeters. So if it's asymptomatic and it's less than four centimeters by this algorithm, you're not even going to follow up with imaging.
0: If you have right upper quadrant symptoms or dare issues, or patients with a greater than four centimeters size cyst, you need to go in detail
1: then really digging down and trying to make sure we understand is the symptoms of abdominal fullness or pain, early satiety, those kinds of things, are they truly related to this thing? And if you say yes, then you're thinking about an intervention.
0: And so what are our two options for intervention?
1: Retrospective data that is out there would suggest that aspiration and sclerosis, believe it or not, has a pretty low recurrence rate, somewhere quoted in the low single digit range. Whereas surgical cyst unroofing and then packing it with or burning it with the argon or packing it with omentum in a whole range of series, anywhere from a zero to 14% recurrence rate, with complications to include post op bleeding, development of an abscess, or Maybe one of the more complex ones would be a bile leak.
0: And this sclerosis with 70% ethanol. The recurrence rate is relatively low, according to their study. There's some level of persistent symptomatology also in the low single digits.
1: And then you run the risk of ethanol toxicity. This is just perhaps a framework to think about how you would approach a cyst that is truly symptomatic.
0: And here's our next lesion. This one has at least four or five septations. It is still relatively smooth, but maybe a little more regular than the last one. Borders are still predominantly fluid-filled. And again, if you wanna follow along, check out these imagings. They're below in the description on the Stakehorn app.
1: So this is representative of a mucinous cystic neoplasm, very similar in histologic appearance to the mucinous cystic neoplasm of the ovary. It often occurs more in adults and females, and it's often symptomatic that it's a true neoplasm rather than a simple cyst.
0: It is important to differentiate whether or not it is a non-invasive version or associated with an invasive carcinoma. And sometimes it is very difficult to tell on axial imaging or ultrasound.
1: And oftentimes it's not a great idea to biopsy this thing because you can see the peritoneum, you can see the tract, especially if it's an invasive carcinoma. And certainly the treatment for that is resection. Fortunately, this is exceedingly rare.
0: And next we have echinococcal cysts as another entity on the differential diagnosis for complex hepatic cystic disease.
1: So this is the larval stage of a dog tapeworm. And the thought process here is that the ova of the parasite travels via the intestine through an enteral route through the portal vein. Most are single cysts.
0: So what kind of things might you see that are esoteric on a physical exam?
1: There might be some pleuritic pain because of the transit that can occur between the abdominal cavity and the thoracic cavity, which is absolutely frightening to me. When you listen to the liver, you can hear a rub.
0: Here's a question for Dr. Bonbach that everyone's thinking about. Why do you think all these diseases, including hepatic abscesses, are right lobe predominant? Is it mass related, like we said before?
1: The mass of the right lobe, right, is usually about 60% of the liver and the blood flow to the right lobe accordingly is bigger. So I think infectious agents preferentially head to the right liver. So that's typically where you're going to encounter these things.
0: Now, treatment depends on the appearance of the cyst.
1: Are there daughter cysts within the dominant cyst? Why is that? What is the most feared complication of anything you would do to intervene on this cyst?
0: Rupture and causing anaphylaxis.
1: If you spill the cysts, the cystic material can create an anaphylaxis, right?
0: So how do we treat it?
1: Regardless is both pre and post operatively, you're gonna treat the patient with an antiparasitic albendazole. Then we talk about what are our options from a surgical and a percutaneous treatment.
0: What do you usually do for surgery? or how do you decide?
1: I I saw in some of the papers and some of the review articles was the WHO actually has a classification system for hydatid disease and it grades it, you're more likely to spill or have complications the more active daughter cysts you have in the lesion. So if the daughter cysts are more predominant, they don't really recommend the PAIR.
0: PAIR, or PAIR technique, stands for puncture, aspiration, injection, and reaspiration. And it's used to treat cystic disease of liver.
1: They favor open surgery, packing the abdomen, double suction. Essentially, it boils down to, are there active daughter cysts? In which case, you have to be much more careful with your therapy.
0: The next thing we'll talk very briefly about is ciliated hepatic foregut cyst.
1: Only because I've actually seen one of these kids and following one of these kids.
0: In the disease process, it's histologically analogous to a bronchogenic cyst.
1: And it's a ciliated pseudostratified columnar epithelium followed by smooth muscle, followed by connective tissue, followed by a fibrous capsule. It can transform into a frank malignancy into a squamous cell carcinoma.
0: So we have a 15-year-old husky young man who present to the emergency department with moderate abdominal pain mild jaundice nausea and anorexia he had been previously seen by one of the partners and is awaiting for cholecystectomy
1: so from on physical exam he's diaphoretic high grade fevers he's tachycardic has mild pain his bilirubin is elevated his transaminases are not and his glucose and his white blood cell count are elevated
0: in imaging there's an enhancing rumor around it and it's septated what is your differential diagnosis? Could it be a viral tumor? Could it be some strange manifestation of bacterial hepatitis?
1: So, the demographics here would be for hepatic abscesses. At least in the summary from the score portal, 25% of hepatic abscesses occur in the first year of life and 50% in the first 5 years of age, which is interesting. I wouldn't tell you that we've seen that many hepatic abscesses. Probably due to aggressive surgical and antibiotic treatment of intraabdominal disease.
0: How about risk factors?
1: Instrumentation of the biliary tree. Diabetes. Strangely enough, proton pump inhibitor use has been cited or has been founded retrospectively to be a risk factor for hepatic abscess and chronic granulomatous disease and then certainly in patients who are immunosuppressed.
0: And what are the types of organisms we should be suspicious for that type of an abscess?
1: Believe it or not, E. coli and Klebsiella would be the enteric gram-negative rods.
0: And then you gotta think gram-positive cocci, which is usually strep pyogenes and staph aureus.
1: In the modern period, one author suggested staph aureus to be the most common, interestingly enough. And then there is a special strep species, strep milleri. Perhaps if you cultured that out of the abscess, you would be obligated to look for disseminated, specifically ocular and neuroaxial infection as well.
0: Then what are we gonna do? How are we gonna treat this one?
1: Strain it. antibiotics, when would you leave a catheter? Or would you leave a catheter? Again, another treatment algorithm I saw in another paper said that if it's greater than five centimeters, you might have a more propensity to leave a catheter rather than just aspirate and blast them with antibiotics.
0: Again, that same author suggested four to six weeks of IV antibiotics and followed by four to six weeks of oral antibiotics.
1: So be ready to readmit the kid for C. diff three months after entamoeba. Realistically, you're gonna see not only from migrants, but also travelers to endemic areas, which are listed there. It's not like you go visit one of those places and you come right back with it because there's a gestation period.
0: It happens anywhere from eight to 12 to 20 weeks of travel or migration to an endemic area. And the median time presentation is around 12 weeks.
1: So it's pretty far out. You can diagnose this checking serologies. So from the blood using immunoglobulin ELISA assays or PCR and that you would see a leukocytosis without eosinophilia. It can be invasive into the thorax.
0: It can also cause a weird Bacchiari-like syndrome if it obstructs or invades the hepatic veins or the outflow tract of the liver.
1: So the treatment of N-amoeba is antibiotics. Two ways you have to treat an amoeba would be from the tissue standpoint, so the tissue meaning the liver, and that is flagell.
0: But then you also have to treat the parasite and the lumen of the bowel. And those are the luminal agents.
1: So Remember, it's a dual therapy. If it's invasive to the liver, and usually that's curative. But when you do have to consider drainage in the rare occurrence, usually that's in a large amoeba abscess.
0: Those that are not responsive to therapy and those that are imminently could rupture. And the last thing on our list today is bacterial hepatitis. A lot of different things can cause it.
1: I've seen this arguably once when I was asked to take out an appendix and then saw a whole bunch of adhesions in the right upper quadrant around the liver that it was more a diagnosis of Fitz-Hugh-Curtis. So remember, that's Neisseria or Chlamydia, and it should always be in the differential theoretically for abdominal pain in a woman. And then again, they made this big point about Bartonella hepatitis.
0: It is the third most common manifestation of Bartonella, but it's exceedingly rare.
1: How do you treat Bartonella hepatitis? It's usually like dual. Some combination of thioprene and doxycycline would be your first line agent, and then rifampin is the backup for that.
0: In summary, presentation of bacterial infections can be varied. Some people may present with nonspecific symptoms such as fatigue, malaise and fever, while others may have more specific symptoms such as jaundice, hepatomegaly, and right upper quadrant pain. There are various organisms that can cause hepatic infections and it's essential to consider the specific characteristics and needs of each patient. Understanding the epidemiology, presentation, and management of these conditions is crucial for the diagnosis and treatment of the patients. As we wrap up today's episode, remember to use imaging to your advantage, especially evaluating cystic lesions of the liver. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, and download the Stay Current app for hundreds of pieces of content on Apple Store and Play Store. I'm M. Tom Bash, Research Fellow of Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and along with Stay we are sharing knowledge to improve child health around the globe.